Welcome to Geek Catch-Up. I'm Kyle Eckert alongside Chris Heck. We're two lifelong friends with a passion for all things geek. Whether it's gaming, movies, television, wrestling, comics, whatever. If it's nerdy, there's a good chance we're into it. You are listening to Chapter 13 of Season 1. Today, it's back to comics as our X-Men highlight continues. The Dawn of X books are wrapping up their second story arc, so Chris and I will give our thoughts on what's been happening. Then we're taking a deeper dive into a series that has absolutely blown us away, the Image Comics Dark Fantasy Dive. Fair warning, there will be spoilers ahead. Before we get started here, Chris and I would like to take a moment to say thank you for listening to this chapter and thank you to everyone that's been listening. There's a lot going on in the world right now, and we appreciate you choosing to spend your time with us. Hopefully everyone is staying safe and healthy. Also, we hope that in this short time you're hanging out with us, it's a nice break from the high stress we are all experiencing. Usually this is the part where we ask you to spread the word about Geek Catch-Up on social media and to stay saucy. Instead, I'll ask that you spread the word on using common sense, smart social distancing, and to quote Braun Strowman, remember to wash those hands. Throughout this season of Geek Catch-Up, we've been breaking down and analyzing the latest era of X-Men comics known as the Dawn of X. Check out Chapter 1 for our thoughts on the new status quo established following the events of 2019's House of X and Powers of Ten that saw mutants within the Marvel Universe finally take control of their own destiny. Professor Charles Xavier and Magneto have united all mutants under one banner, establishing themselves as a new nation backed by the financial support of pharmaceuticals made from the flowers exclusively grown on the living island of Krakoa. And while most of the world recognizes this nation, there are still some who continue to threaten the family of X. Under the Dawn of X umbrella, several titles have been released over the past few months, each following a different group or hero, but all adding up to one story. In Chapter 8, we looked at each of the first four or five issues from the various series we've been following, seeing significant events transpire in Marauders, Excalibur, X-Force, and the lead flagship series, X-Men. You'll have to check out Chapter 8 to get our full thoughts, but in Marauders, we saw a new dawn for Sebastian Shaw, Emma Frost, and the Hellfire Club as Kate Pride was named the Red Queen and Captain of the Marauder. Tasked with a dual mission on the black market, get the drugs in and get the mutants out. In Excalibur, another mutant, Betsy Braddock, took on a new role as Captain, assuming the mantle of Captain Britain from her brother Brian, and defending the world from the magical other world led by the sorceress Morgan Le Fay. Understanding the power of a team that can operate on the sly, the Mutant Council created a new X-Force to operate as the CIA wing of Krakoa. And rounding out our lineup is the lead series X-Men, featuring a rotating cast of top names. This book goes story to story, weaving the entire timeline together. At this point in time, each series has hit their second story arc and the significant blows continue. Major revelations and deaths have occurred across the board, some even at the hands of unsuspected allies. From here, we're going to walk through most of the biggest moments from the titles we're following. So starting with Excalibur number five, we saw probably the biggest moment of this story arc when Rogue, after recovering from a magical trance, She finds Gambit in trouble and then proceeds to actually drain Apocalypse of his power, killing him. This was, for me, reading Excalibur, the best moment so far. Leading up to this, we had really seen a little bit of a slower build. 
We were getting a little bit of pieces as far as what Apocalypse's scheme is. He's been after these ancient magic crystals. He's caused some tears between the worlds, which <laughs> unleashed some dragons and other monsters on London. And right here in this moment, it was really big for his plan, apparently. And we didn't know that until this point. Rogue had been in a trance. Gambit was pissed. We were trying to figure out exactly what was going on. She comes back. Gambit is actually fighting with Apocalypse, which was yeah. kind of the catalyst, right, for why Rogue jumped into action. And she just went full tilt. She beats Apocalypse down, drains him of the power, and then it was a great page at the end of it where you actually see Rogue, but she's got this, like, gray Apocalypse skin. She's kind of got the weird smile line, and, you know, it was a very, very powerful moment. Yeah, that's pretty That's pretty wild considering Apocalypse and his history of being a big bad for the X-Men. And, you know, Rogue is obviously no slouch. Her, her mutant ability to drain other people's life force and their power and to adapt power of other mutants when she touches them. Uh, it's it's pretty wild that she came in and was able to just instantly drain him of his power and take him out. Yeah, it was a sweet moment regardless. I definitely believe that Apocalypse was going a little soft on her to be beaten uh, okay. that fast. You Because know, like I said, a lot of what's going on in Excalibur is adding up to this plan that apocalypse has apparently had for thousands of years according to some of the little tidbits of his grimoire and things like that that they've given us right so you know it wasn't a true showdown between the two yeah he was taking it easy taking it easy pulling his punches yeah but still a powerful moment and it really it powered rogue up for some of the things that are coming later in the series yeah that's pretty sweet pretty sweet but then just one issue later uh we saw a huge emotionally packed scene as Betsy Braddock killed her brother Brian uh, when their recently reborn other brother, Jamie Braddock, manipulated reality and kind of forced Brian to fall on her, on Betsy's sword. Yeah, back-to-back issues here where we saw some big deaths and some of these moments that have been happening leading up to this, like Jamie Braddock being brought back, that was controversial yeah. for some of the mutants, especially the Braddock family, because he is a Omega-level mutant who can control reality pretty much at his own whim so he is very dangerous and he's a loose cannon like kind of crazy wild card type dude so everybody knows that it's not really the best thing potentially to have him around (laughs) you're right but the opening to issue six here was really cool because the first you know three or four pages are actually this big medieval battle scene it's almost like something out of lord of the rings or game of thrones oh really because the excalibur team is essentially assaulting the castle that Morgan Le Fay is in in Otherworld. And so she's sending out, you know, her riders and her army. <laughs> and then you've got, like, apocalypse-powered rogue. And Betsy is Captain Britain and Jubilee and her son, who's now a dragon. You know, there's some crazy stuff yeah. going on. It, it's like Helm's Deep, but in the mutant and world. It, why not? It's very true, yeah. And what it all kind of comes down to after they hit this standstill is apocalypse comes in once again now that he's been reborn he got prioritized with the hatchery because he's on the council right yeah i was gonna say prioritized his resurrection um, from the five yep so he comes back and they ultimately decide we're gonna do a champion's duel so apocalypse names betsy braddock and morgan lefay when we talked about the first story arc for excalibur she had taken over brian braddock the original captain britain and kind of possessed him turned him into like a super knight and so they have to go toe-to-toe in order to determine who's going to take over Otherworld. Nice. Yeah, that's pretty cool. 
Well, we did mention it. Uh, Apocalypse does get his prioritized rebirth. Uh, if you're not familiar with the status quo of the mutants, uh, they've pretty much ended death for themselves with the work of the five. Definitely check out chapter one. We talk about it in House of X and Powers of Ten, uh, where mutants are basically immortal now, but we'll leave you to check out chapter chapter one for that one. But when he gets resurrected, Apocalypse begins to kind of expose the next phase of his plan, and then he sends the team on a hunt for werewolves and otherworldly beings that are powerful enough to be other dimensional conduits, which is pretty intense. Yeah, once again, everything that Apocalypse seems to be doing is definitely more in that world of magic and other dimensions and space. You know, there's a lot going on there. It was right around this time where he starts sharing more and more of what he's actually doing with the Excalibur team, finally kind of letting them in on what he's been making them do. (laughs) Right. You know, through all of this. And so we see that this was a really cool issue because it was a little different. We see the team go hunting for these warwolves, which are essentially like these shapeshifter alien beings. They're like humanoid, but not truly. Right. And so the team has to go team up with the Bloodstones who have the warwolves. They've been like keeping them as pets. And it ultimately kind of backfires on them after they start the hunt and the Bloodstones are working with them. But ultimately... The Bloodstone starts hunting the mutants because he realizes that that would be more challenging and more fun. And he's all about, you know, the sport of hunting. Right. How craven of him. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, I will mention I'm a little salty because I do my comics via subscription service and i actually never received issue eight which was the second half of the hunt uh and so that is a a miss for me right now i didn't have a chance to go and find it digitally and pull it up and fill in that hole but i do know because i got issue nine that the (laughs) team survived and they kept on with their plans so yeah and with those werewolf skulls in hand the team uh is sent to the starlight citadel which is a magical meeting place between all realities Uh, But they are surprised by an attack from Opal Saturnine and her army of priests that channel magical moon and starlight powers and attack with like these magical bows and arrows. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I I don't know if she's a totally new character made up just for this story arc or if she's someone that's been around in the Marvel Universe for a number of years. I'm not familiar with Opal Saturnine, but this was a pretty cool place. I was also not familiar with the Starlight Citadel, to be honest, but it was once home to Merlin. It was once home to the now-destroyed Captain Britain corpse. So it it seems to be a pretty important place in, in the universe of things. And I know Apocalypse, from what we saw in this issue, is very um, interested in what they've got going on there. Now, sadly, this has been kind of the cutoff point for this series, where we left on a cliffhanger in issue 9, right as Saturnine's Moon Priest's start attacking you know there's a kind of a little bit of a back and forth between the Excalibur team and her army right and then at the very end we get this teaser where she realizes like she's going to need more power to take on Excalibur so we get one panel where she looks like she's essentially summoning the Captain Britain corpse Ooh. so there's like four or five Captain Britons <laughs> standing there from over the years and, like, that's the end. So, like, I was super pumped about, like, oh, man, like, get the next one. This is about to pop off. You know, we're going to get some payoff here on the story. But, unfortunately, with the COVID-19 kind of disrupting things, 
we'll have to wait and see exactly when we get the end of this. Yeah, and that's going to kind of be a running theme throughout here today where some of these stories are going to get cut short because of the unfortunate situation of COVID-19 and Marvel and DC publishers kind of taking a bit of a halt. But you, you talked about Saturnine. She, she's actually historically a Captain Britain villain. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so she's a little older, but, you know, I can't say that I'm too familiar with her or much of Cap- Captain Britain. I, I didn't really read a lot of Captain Britain. And I'm not too familiar with magical world beings. It's historically not the type of comics that I read. But it's cool that to see that they brought her back. And with Betsy Braddock taking on the role, they're bringing in a lot of traditional Captain Britain villains. Yeah, and, and for me, I'm in the same boat. Like, I was always familiar with Captain Britain as far as the existence of Captain Britain, right? <laughs> right, yeah. And maybe gotten a couple little tidbits or you see him in a crossover where he was brought in to participate but for me, I've learned way more about that character, the lore, how he gets his powers or she gets their power, you know, all of those types of things here in Excalibur. And it's been pretty cool. I always love learning about new characters, even if they're not my favorite. There's so much lore that goes into them. But ultimately, that was where I wasn't sure exactly where Opal Saturnine came in, if she was brand new or, or vice versa, because I had never seen that name. Yeah, well, I mean, there's so many superheroes out there and so many comic books to follow. It's impossible to really know every single one unless you read the Marvel Encyclopedia and remember it cover <laughs> to cover. <laughs> that's but true. That's, that's, true. A, that's a lot to ask of anyone. Yeah, all in all, though, Excalibur on the back end, you know, issues five through nine, it really picked up the action. I thought it took the readers back through a number of the locations that were kind of mentioned and set up earlier in the story. So it really helped raise the stakes and, you know, clearly now the tension's starting to boil over with some of the team and what's going on. So all in all, I've really enjoyed Excalibur, but now I'm like, I got to know exactly what Apocalypse Master Plan is. You know, I need need these answers. I need to know what happened at the Starlight Citadel. And, you know, unfortunately, it's just kind of TBD. Yeah, we'll get there and find out what happens. And hopefully when things get back to normal, the comic world's going to get back to normal and they won't just move on to the next story and say, oh, where we were halts. They actually do pick up from where they left off. Yeah, I agree. It would definitely be unfortunate if they just kind of cut some of these out or didn't pick them back up and finish them. Yeah. But that was Excalibur and kind of some of the main points that have been going on there. We're now going to shift our focus over to Marauders, which is what Kyle has been reading. So Marauders has had its fair share of deaths and failed rebirths mixed in as well. Unhappy with how the votes are shaping up inside the Hellfire Club, Kate Pride has been double-crossed by Sebastian Shaw, which ends up in her being tied up in living vines when she's thrown in the ocean. And that impact ends up being felt all around as there are several key moments where the Marauders team allow that personal emotion to get the better of them and causes them to lash out using full force of their mutant powers. And in particular, during an operation to get Kate's body back, Iceman actually ends up going full sinister by freezing people, breaking off limbs. Sounded like a pretty intense moment. Oh, it, it really was. Like, it was this... You always want to see these mutants, these, especially the Omega-level mutants, go full tilt. And this specific moment where they had to get Kate's body back because part of the resurrection protocols with the X-Men is that they can't resurrect you until there's a confirmed death. And at the time, the with the way Sebastian double-crossed Kate, tied her up, threw her into the ocean. 
they had drowned. They didn't have a body to produce to know that Kate was really dead, so they couldn't resurrect her. Um, so they went on this like black ops mission on this ship to get her body back. And while Bishop goes to get the body, Bobby Drake Iceman is is left kind of defending, and he walks into this room, and it's just full of like SWAT team guys, and they think they've got him pinned, and he just and he just loses it and totally unleashes this ice storm in this tiny little room he sucks the oxygen out of the air and they're passing out and then he grabs them by the arm and totally freezes their arm and then breaks it off and he's i mean he's almost gone villain because in certain moments he's like i want you to remember what happened here today and he like there's this brief section where he's basically being like you're gonna have phantom limb syndrome and i want you to know that i'm the one that did it to you (laughs) that's pretty intense yeah, for a mutant that's usually pretty happy-go-lucky, it was just super intense and dark, and it's exactly what you want to see. You're like, hell yeah, like Iceman <laughs> has the ability to do this, and now he really is. It was just, it was awesome. Well, I think it kind of brings up an interesting point just overall, right? The shift in the X-Men in general now that they're on the island of Krakoa, now that they've got their own nation. And we've seen this with a few of the mutants across the stories where they've been almost emboldened in a way, because of the fact that now they're a nation, because of the new confidence that Charles and Magneto have given them by demanding things of the world, demanding respect, you know, for years and years and years, the approach always seemed to be from them or the mindset of like, we can do these things, but we need to be better. We need to keep it in control. We need to limit how much we use our powers. So that way the humans won't fear us, that the world will accept us. And now in Krakoa, while they're still trying to do those things, it's almost like, I mean, you think just kind of to put it to real life, right? You think about like the American military, like we get to do whatever we want because we're the might of the American military. And, you know, we don't want to fuck with you, but if you really give us a reason, we're going to just turn it up and good luck. Yeah. And it's almost like one of those situations now where you've had these moments of a guy like Iceman, maybe kind of losing it a little bit because he doesn't think he's going to have to maybe deal with the same repercussions that he would have in the past. Right. Well, and he's been he's been greenlit to kill in this situation. They they do have rules and laws on the the council has given each mutant like and one of them is don't kill humans, but in situations like this, his emotion got the better of him and he unleashed his full power and showed them exactly what he who he is and what he's about and what he's capable of. So, and that's going to happen. They're going to flex a little bit because they've been dominated by the humans for so long. And now they're, they're establishing themselves. They're just showing a little bit of backbone. So it's painted them in a different light and not everyone has been totally on board with it, but I like it. I, you know, I, I like to see them finally standing up for themselves and they're not going overboard and, and killing people on purpose, but they are defending themselves. Right. Like I said, and, and finally just saying, this is us. Here we are. Like, we're not just going to roll over anymore. And like, we're, we're going to go full blown. Well, it's kind of funny what came to mind as you were saying that too, just to kind of build on where I was going before is that if you also think on the flip side, right, a lot of the villainous mutants that are here on Krakoa and are working with these guys now, they've been more in check than they normally yeah. would be. They've done very little on their side while the heroes, the, the classic heroes are having to go and and make some of these decisions and do some of these out-of-character things. So the whole situation with Krakoa and Dawn of X 
has has made some of these characters grow and change in some different ways i feel oh yeah absolutely we're you know everyone's adjusted slightly and i like it i I just like it's a more serious tone yeah and i'm really on board for that it's almost a little bit more relatable in some ways i think i had it down as some of my overall thoughts for the x-men series but to me especially having been away from comics or the x-men comics you know especially for a number of years I feel like it is a little bit more of that grown-up adult version of these characters that we're getting. Very relatable scenarios and character conflicts and things like that. Inner inner conflicts. And it, it's elevating those characters to me personally. Yeah. Oh, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Wholeheartedly agree. But one thing we did mention there was that uh, it, it was a death and failed rebirth. So we, we can't not mention that... Kate Pride, they did get her body back. They deemed that deemed that she was dead. And then kind of this underlying story that's been happening in Marauders is that they weren't sure if Kate is actually a mutant because she hasn't been able to use the gates of Krakoa. And there's been people questioning that as to why, but she's been a mutant for so long that she's part of the family and nobody's thinking otherwise. But what has happened kind of in the background of a couple of these issues of Marauders is that they aren't able to resurrect her. The Five has failed to resurrect her multiple times. Okay. And it's it started to cause this questioning of, okay, well, is Kate actually a mutant? Which would be a slight rewrite from her history. But it it is notable that, you know, she's not able to use the gates. So she has to travel by ship. And then now the resurrection protocols aren't working correctly. So something's up here and her death could prove to be permanent. So have they revealed any information in Marauders then around that? Do they have any theories other than that she might not be a mutant? Are there any other theories or comments that were made as far as her situation and what that could mean for like greater mutants overall? Or has anything else come up yet? Not specifically for Kate. They, they have mentioned that there are mutants out there that can't use the gates. And that's what the Marauders are for. That they'll go get them by ship and bring them back to Krakoa. But not specifically for Kate. Okay. Uh, nothing has nothing has been. Oh, she's not a mutant. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for her going forward? But we'll see. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because there's a lot of pride and hubris that comes with Xavier and Magneto and a lot of the the mutant plans over the years, right? And this situation doesn't spare that at all, right? They are still right. very much thinking that they are in control of everything, that they are writing their own destiny and trying to you know, prevent things from the future happening. So it'll be interesting because some of these moments like this, it's not stuff that's going according to plan for Xavier. Yeah. And so it, it'll just be, we'll have to see how they unfolded, right? And to see what the repercussions are. Oh, yeah. And this perfect idea that they had for being able to cheat death and live here in peace, that's probably not going to fully work out. No, no. When we saw kind of at the end of Powers of Ten with the timeline situation that it doesn't always work out the way they want it. You know, we see Moira X's various lives and they typically end in tragedy. So is this timeline any different? Yep, exactly. So Moving off of Marauders here, uh, we're going to look at for all that's happening in X-Force and what we got out of X-Force was actually a new Wolverine series that recently gave us a closer look at Logan's current situation. And of all the series, 
X-Force and Wolverine have probably seen the most death and destruction. In fact, X-Force number one kicked off with the assassination of Charles Xavier. And then it's later revealed to the reader, but not the mutant world, that Charles actually knew it was coming and let it happen. So when we talk about how the X-Men have had this air of superiority, Charles is there to remind them that things are fragile and things can go wrong. But then throughout the various missions of X-Force, we've also seen other team members fall. Quentin Quire has died, Domino, Colossus, even Jean Grey, who was killed by Wolverine in the solo series there. And so the mutant resurrection protocols have taken away the finality of death. What we're seeing in X-Force is this lasting mental damage that's done to each of these mutants, that they're dying and resurrecting over and over, and the scars of their death is still there. Yeah, it's definitely weighing on some of the mutants. And even in some of the other books, we've seen this come up where now that they're actually going through these events, you know, it's one thing to talk about doing this stuff. But now that they're going through it, they're seeing people they care about die. They themselves may be dying and coming back and what that toll is taking on them mentally, physically, etc. So it's a really interesting dynamic because... You know, it's really, really difficult to cheat death. And there's almost always, you know, no matter what story you're looking at, what lore, the idea of cheating death comes with consequences. Absolutely. And it's something that Wolverine and Logan has dealt with for a long time. He talks about the mental scars, like obviously his body with his mutant ability, it heals and he's okay. But the mental things that he has to go through, knowing that his entire body bottom half was blown off or all of his skin was burnt off like that takes a toll and we talked about the phantom limb uh, situation that bobby drake put those soldiers through that's very much real here if these mutants continue to die and then be resurrected uh, they're not going to forget like what happened to them and that that's really shown in x-force a lot we got a couple of issues that showed the dynamic between domino and colossus because at the start of X-Force, they were both on away missions and got captured. Domino had her skin completely grafted off that was put onto soldiers so they could get into Krakoa. Colossus was taken hostage and tortured. And while, yes, of course, they died and came back, nobody forgets being tortured. Exactly. Yeah, and I think that it's been a lot more brutal in X-Force. You know, I've read one or two of them, the more important issues, but you've been the one following this. And it really, every time we talk about it, it seems like it's been the most devastating, you know, impactful from that side of things with the price that these mutants are paying to help build this nation of Krakoa. Oh, yeah. You get these moments where I forgot whether it's eight or nine in the opening scene. uh, Wolverine and Dakin are playing Russian roulette in the middle of a bar on Krakoa. Everybody's partying and forgetting about their troubles, but they're domino and colossus just can't and it's because of these these problems that they're having being like how can we be so happy knowing that yesterday i died well and some of them and they've been built this way for years but some of the mutants even though they have these powers are still kind of everyday people yeah and if you look at some of the other mutants like nightcrawler or or colossus himself that family's a big part of their lives religion is a big part of their lives you know, those types of things, they don't just go away. And so, you know, for those kinds of people, the idea of death is a finality, it might even be a reprieve. And now that you're completely removing that, it's challenging 
those inner aspects at their core, you know, like yeah. the most deep beliefs you hold are being completely turned upside down. And that's going to take its toll on anybody. And, you know, it's been interesting because we're talking about kind of repercussions and things like that. Throughout Dawn of X, we've also come to find that certain humans are adapting to these newfound powers that the mutants are, are using and have obtained. Um, we've seen them use bioengineering, like you mentioned, pulling skin off a domino and attaching it to humans so they can kind of mask themselves as mutants. We've seen cloning. We've seen technoviruses coming out to combat the Krakoan tactics. There's been a lot that has already started to be pushed back. A bunch of new problems, right? Oh, yeah. That the mutants didn't have before. And in Wolverine, the Wolverine solo series, Logan actually teamed up with a U.S. CIA agent named Jeff Bannister to investigate some of this, where they're seeing um, weapons and illicit drugs being derived from the flowers grown on Krakoa. Yeah, it's known as pollen. So they, they take the flowers grown on Krakoa and they're turning it into a drug that's effectively killing humans and then they're blaming the mutants. So they're really seeing the humans adapt to what the mutants have done with their new nation and their new culture. As we've said that the mutants are finally standing up for themselves and not rolling over. Well, here we are in this situation. The humans are not just rolling over and allowing, you know, they're still trying to assert their dominance over the mutants and adapting their tactics. And we've seen Domino was cloned, which was draining her clones were actually draining her mutant power of luck, which was a really unique situation that we saw in X-Force. Technoviruses, uh, Storm actually was exposed to a technovirus. We saw that in giant-sized X-Men, Emma and Jean. So it, the humans, and of course, the Sentinels, Sentinel City in, in the X-Men series, that like people aren't just going to allow the Homo Superior to just dominate the future. Yeah. They, want, they want to stay relevant. It's a constant ebb and flow, and they've definitely done a pretty good job across the books with pushing back. Every time you think the mutants are getting the leg up, then they kind of get knocked back down, and then vice versa. So... I've really enjoyed what I saw in X-Force and then really in the new Wolverine solo series, how just gritty and gruesome it all seems. Yeah. You know, it is, it's very intense. And from the get-go with the Wolverine solo series, I mean, they did not wait to get that <laughs> full steam ahead with opening up and it looks like Wolverine has just murdered everybody he knows. We find out a little later that maybe he's not... In his right mind, you know, he might be being controlled, which is a very dangerous thing if you think about what Logan can do. But what are your thoughts on the Wolverine solo series so far? I love the direction that it's taken out the gate. Part of it does a little feel a little bit like X-Force 2.0, like it, or just like a slight spinoff of X-Force. But X-Force has been so good, I'm okay with that. But I, I love the the new characters that they've introduced as far as the, the White Witch. That's awesome. They brought Omega Red back. Omega Red, you know me. I'm a huge yeah. fan. And that was, was awesome. That was like my number one moment in Wolverine number one was finally seeing Omega Red come back. Because House of Ten, Powers of Ten, you know, all the Dawn of X books, like I've been kind of wondering, like, where was Omega yeah. Red? Are we going <laughs> to see him? And then, boom, he showed up here. And it was kind of a perfect place to show up with his history with Wolverine. Oh, yeah. And, of course, Logan does not trust him. He pretty much wants to just kill him right away or let him die. And, you know, there's some interesting moments there between Logan and Magneto 
about the new way of Krakoa. Omega Red is a mutant, the whole nine yards, so he doesn't quite get his way at the moment. There was a lot in that issue, especially because they also go in and you find out like the, the vampire nation. Yeah. And that's kind of building. So not only does the mutants have this threat with what the humans are doing to push back, but given some of these shifts in the world as a whole, you're seeing other factions like the vampire nation try to rise up and bound together. And so we could see some new problems that they haven't even experienced before given other people's interests. Oh, yeah. That first issue of Wolverine set up so many threads. It was, it, And it was a double issue, so naturally that's going to happen. But it was like, man, there's so much going on here. Which mm-hmm. one are they going to go to first? I was happy to see in issue number two that they followed the thread with the CIA agent Jeff Bannister. Yep. Because... It, this is a personal feeling towards it. I really like the detective comic series that follow Gordon Okay. on the Batman side of things. I think it's nice to see just a regular everyday Joe do something. So that vibe with the Jeff or the Jeff Bannister kind of just being a regular person teaming up with this superhero of sorts. I, I like that. I enjoy stories like that. So I was happy to see where it goes. But then there was a bit of a twist at the end of number two there. Didn't see that coming. I did not see that coming at all. Uh, we, we gave you the spoiler warning before. I'll give it to you right now. If you plan on reading Wolverine and you don't want to hear this, uh, that white witch plays a little mental game on Logan and he stabs Jeff Bannister right through the heart. Yeah, killed him right there and kind of like went crazy and took the boat over. I I did not see that coming. I actually had to like stop myself and relook at the panel because I didn't get it first that that Wolverine even stabbed him. Yeah. Because it was from behind. You really only see in the picture like just a little bit of the claws coming through his body. And so I thought that at first the image was really more of like Bannister being shocked at what he was seeing out in front of him. Yeah. And then you realize, no, he's shocked because he just got stabbed in the back. (laughs) And so it it really kind of just escalated what was already a crazy story to start with, with everything they did, like you said, in issue one. And it just turned it up to 11. Yeah. Once again, we, we were saying before, like, another big cliffhanger. Like, oh, my God, I got to see what the next issue is going to be. And, you know, we're going to have to wait for it. But I did have a question here before we move on. Are you familiar with the White Witch? Like, is she a character from before? or Not that I know of. I mean, that once again, we said that there's a million superheroes and a million villains out there in all the different series. But she is not someone I'm familiar with. That's not to say that she's new, but I, I've never seen her before. They haven't named her yet, so... They haven't named her yet. She's still just the White Witch. I think it's interesting. She kind of has, and we've seen this through a few of the Dawn of X series, this, like, temporal, see-through type yeah. vibe to her. Where, like, there's like a ghost. Like a ghost. There's so A ghost is perfect. There's so many characters showing up in the Dawn of X series like throughout the like the overarching umbrella of Dawn of X that have this like ghost feel. It, it could be something with the future because the timelines across. I mean, ever since House and Powers, the timelines that they've been talking about and giving us in these X Men books have been pretty big. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about spanning hundreds and then thousands of years, millennia at times. And so we've also gotten a couple pieces here, and we'll probably get into it when we get into the actual X-Men series here in a few minutes. But the one where they went to the vault kind of gave me some reason to think that there's a lot of futuristic stuff going on now. So 
So that was kind of my thought, right, with the okay. White Witch and some of those other characters we've seen because of that temporal look. Like, is this other aspects of the future coming back to mess with, like, the Terminator situation, right? Like, we're going to send <laughs> the Terminator back to kill John Connor so that way the things of the future can't happen the way they do. I don't know. It's been a good way to keep us on our toes as readers. Yeah, definitely. I mean, timeline shifts can get old if you overdo them. But so far, they've been peppered in like perfectly. And with the callbacks to House and Powers and a lot of the time shifts that we saw there, it it has felt like the appropriate amount of salt and pepper there. Yeah. And so I did touch on it a little bit there. But to move into the last book of the series that we've been reading, that we've been following, it is the flagship title for Dawn of X and simply titled X-Men. So looking through some of the events of issues five through nine, I kind of just touched on it. But early on, we saw that battling humans just wasn't enough for the X-Men as they keep creating these problems for themselves. And really in this main series, one of the things that we see is that the team releases a child of the vault named Serafina. And there's still a lot that we have to learn about that. But in the process of trying to figure out what is going on with this vault, This character, Cyclops, makes a hard call and sends away a team to Ecuador in hopes to track her. And then he sends the young team of Darwin, Sink, and X-23 into this vault. And we're not sure what it's going to be like, but it could have some serious, serious consequences. It really could. And that's been... I don't want to start off the X-Men discussion here with a complaint, but the X-Men book has been a little all over the place. Yeah. And... And this is one of those, another issue where they're showing us something that is just wildly cool. Like this vault where like time and space doesn't matter. And they they hinted that once you go into the vault, when you come out of the vault, it could be thousands of years, which is why this young team was selected because their mutant abilities give them the green light and the okay to kind of go into a time situation where if they came out and it was thousands of years later they'd be okay but this was like a one shot it was uh, an ex- its own issue that they haven't come back to in the four issues since but yeah the things that they addressed in this issue when they went into the vault and they saw the sentinel kind of like sitting in its chair with its giant head and they talked about all of the different things that happened with the children of the vault uh, there's just my head is spinning just trying to think about it honestly Yeah, well, it definitely feels like something that they are going to have to come back to in the future because it struck you as extremely important, something that could be very powerful in the world or there's some secrets and things in there that, like, I was thinking that this vault and how it deals with time and it's highly technological, I was thinking that there actually could be something that the young team brings back that helps Xavier and Magneto be able to change the outcomes that they expect of the future just because of the what was going on there and i mean it seemed like it was like a giant computer system yeah and you know we think about the sentinels and nimrod they're all ai technology so just that was my theory was that it was gonna plug in at some point down the line but what i thought was kind of cool about the end of the issue here was all the concern of time one of the last panels is actually cyclops talking to another character that we don't really see and they're looking at the vault and the character is just kind of studying the vault and watching for the young team to come out and he tells cyclops that it's been like 540 years yeah 
so a we know that cyclops now has lived for 540 years minimum but b the kids still haven't come back out and that's 540 years in real time yeah so in the vault it's it really is thousands of years so i thought that that was an interesting way to leave it off yeah a super cliffhanger and then cyclops naturally starts to question himself yep like what is what has he done and for a man that up until this point is so confident in what he's doing for the mutant race and his team, that might not be a good thing to have your lead commander questioning his own decisions and what he's sending these other mutants to go do and potentially their death. Like you need absolute trust in the process. Yeah, that is true. I didn't even think about it from that standpoint. You know, and that's really been what has been so masterful about how they've laid out Dawn of X is there's just there's so many of those little tidbits. Yeah. You kind of file them away and you're like, this is going to show up as something or it could show up as something down the line. And we're going to have to try and make sure we remember them when we get there. Yeah. Uh, We'll hope to see. I was going to ask you like what you thought of the children of the vault. And specifically, we, we said that a lot of these new characters have this ghostly look. And so Serafina, and I'm, I'm blanking on her name, but Apocalypse's grandchild. Yeah. And, uh, and, and now this white witch, they all have this ghostly look to them. Do you think there's any connection there that Serafina maybe is an ap- Apocalypse grandchildren? Maybe that's what the children of the vault are? That's where I've been going so far, just because of those similarities, those little little clues that we've been given. You know, there are only things that kind of tie together here. Right. And Apocalypse is so old, and you think about how time in this situation right now is so fluid, and it's like, who's from the future? Who's from the past? What's from the future? What's from the past? You know, it really could be a situation like that, where they are these beings of kind of ultimate power from different points in time, but somehow now they are converging in this one moment where Krakoa is coming together. That's about all that I've been able to peg on it from my personal theories. But what about you? No, I had no idea. Like so, so much of that's happened in these books. I'm like, I usually I can make a pretty solid prediction. Uh, but with these, I have no idea where it's going, which has been fun for the ride just to kind of let it happen and not overthink it. But it's interesting, like, Apocalypse has this larger plan in place going in Excalibur. Well, that too. And it wouldn't be too much to see it trickle over into the other Dawn of X titles down the line. Because from from what they've said, you know, this is a series that they have planned out for years. Um, and then, of course, we, you know, we we're, see what happens with the summer event, Swords of Ten. It's Swords of X, uh, but Sword of Ten. Either way, on how it'll be pronounced this summer, like hopefully that gets to happen and might shine a little more light on this overall happening to the mutants and their world. There's definitely a lot more that we don't know yet than we do know, I feel, at this point. Because it still is fairly early. Even though there's a ton of books, nine issues in on most of them, it's still fairly early based on what Marvel and Hickman has told us that their plans are for this with the X-Men. And like most comics, we'd love to see this go 100 issues plus. To give us a full, <laughs> totally, you know, don't reboot the universe again. Please, Marvel, please. Right, right. But we touched on it that even within Kirkoa itself, dissension begins and it starts with Mystique because she no longer wishes to play by Xavier and Magneto's rules. They're refusing to resurrect her wife, Destiny. 
even though they're asking her to go on these away missions, they're asking her to do these things, they won't resurrect Destiny because she can see the future and she'll be able to see that they inevitably fail, which will break everything apart. So Mystique no longer wants to be a part of this society where they're asking her to do things, but she's not getting what she wants. And it seems like everyone else is. And then also a little more dissension as we've seen some others that have started the question the council's way, and especially how they're handling resurrections. Uh, we saw in issue number seven, the crucible, which is this intense way of testing mutants that lost their mutant ability during the events of House of M. And since they've lost their mutant ability, they're not instantly in line for the resurrection protocol. They have to go through the crucible. So that that whole issue, a uh, number seven in the Crucible, for me, was issue of the second arc. It was so good. Yeah, both of these actually I thought were really good with six and seven. And I want to make sure we don't brush over six too much here before we get into seven. Because I thought that there was actually some really cool stuff that happened in six. I have really enjoyed when they fill in the gaps. So issue six with Mystique as the focus was a fill in the gap story right. that took us all the way back to House and Powers and showed us some of the things that Charles and Magneto had certain mutants doing in order to set them up and help them achieve what they wanted to do. So this was one of those moments kind of showing how they sent in most Mystique well before the rest of the team to start messing with the Mother Mold, the space station, whatever you want to call it, out by the sun. The Orcus, the Orcus Forge. Yeah, the Orcus Forge. Thank you. And I thought that another one of the moments that was kind of tucked in here in this issue easily overlooked, but I think is going to have some serious power down the line, was that at one point when Mystique comes back from her mission and she's telling Magneto that she ran into Nimrod or she saw the plans for Nimrod, which they didn't expect to be for, you know, hundreds of years in the future. Yeah. Magneto asks why she didn't just take care of it, why she didn't kill the person working on it or whatever. And the only response that Mystique gives Magneto is, we have laws. And Magneto replies, quote, not for that and not for them. And then it just, they move on. They don't answer, you know, Mystique doesn't give him any more information. They don't answer exactly what was meant. But to me... It seemed like she was insinuating that Nimrod was created by a mutant and not by a human. Oh, see, I, I guess I didn't take it that way. I took it as, you know, we have laws to not kill humans. So that's why I didn't just up and murder someone. Well, I mean, that, that's what she was, I think, trying to say in a, in a way. But Magneto's reply was not for them. Yeah, not for them. Yeah, not, not in this situation. You should have been greenlit. You know, I, I just thought that that was interesting. And maybe I took it wrong compared to what they're going to do. But to me, I was like, whoa, they've always operated under the assumption that the Sentinels and the Nimrod program, all that came from a human. But maybe it didn't. I know. I've never thought of it that way. That would be really, really intense, um, especially because we've seen, as we said, there's a lot of dissension within mutant culture. You know, Mr. Sinister's always doing his thing on the sly. Um, and, and we know from Powers of Ten that there is betrayal yep. from within. And I, I've never even thought that the big betrayal, that the actual Nimrod would be a mutant that has sold out their kind to the humans. 
Yeah, it's possible. You know, we'll definitely have to wait and see what happens. But that was that's my prediction there based on that one line. And so I, I didn't want to just skip over that because I thought that it just could be one of those moments where that issue is easily overlooked. Yeah. But then it circles back and it could be like, well, bam, we told you what was going to happen or we told you yeah. what the answer was, you know, all the way back then. But when we get into, you know, the next issue that comes out with Seven and the Crucible, it kind of just like wipes it away because that was so deep. And we see not only what the Crucible is as they go to do the first ever battle, but we watch this whole storyline unfold as Cyclops and Nightcrawler are kind of walking around the island of Krakoa. They're exploring some things. They're talking about the mysteries of the world and really the the challenges of the soul. Yeah. And Nightcrawler brings up how he's just just filled with more and more questions every day that goes by about are we doing the right thing? What happens to your soul when you die? Kirk is very, very religious and he might be one of the only characters that's truly even thinking about these things. Oh, yeah. I mean, he is. That, that's a huge part of his character, and we've seen it come up in the past, uh, especially in his conversations on the away mission with Logan back in Powers, where Logan was wondering, he questioned him, what will happen to my soul? What happens to the to people like me on the things that I've done? And it to me, it was this, like I said, it for me, it was a moment where they aren't so sure if what they're doing is right. And we, we saw exactly. it like Cyclops questioning himself back in five and now nightcrawler possibly questioning what they're doing here with the crucible thinking that it's too far there's a lot of people that seem to be uncomfortable with how the crucible goes down right well and and even with the resurrection protocols there are people that are worried about what's happening there and you get some of it from nightcrawler here but when i was thinking about this and starting to add up some of the little pieces right you know even with those we've seen pyro going a little bit crazier each time, yep. giving himself face tattoos and things like that. And then you've got them bringing back mutants like Jamie Braddock, who we talked about with Excalibur, a very dangerous, very unstable Omega-level mutant who can literally change reality at a whim. And there's a lot of people that weren't happy about that at all. Yeah. So what are the, what are the consequences of that or, you know, the impacts of like that society mindset about some of these things. They also started getting into what makes you your best self. If you remember that at one point, him and right. Cyclops are talking about, well, some would argue that my best self isn't even coming back with the powers I was given. My best self might be coming back with Magneto's powers. Oh yeah. Or, or maybe Magneto and Cyclops's powers. So they are starting to, kind of set the stage for some other possibilities with this that that we haven't even seen yet. Yeah, and they get into that conversation, they start talking about wills. And they said I've seen, you know, I believe as Nightcrawler says to Cyclops, I've seen the wills that some of the younger mutants are leaving that that's what they want. That if they die, they want to be resurrected with Magneto's powers or someone someone else's powers. And we saw in Powers of 10 in the event that they started to splice mutants. We, we saw mutants with multiple abilities and things like that. And the series never had a chance to come out. But Children of the Atom was supposed to be was set to come. Right? Was supposed to. I, I'm not 100% sure. It looked like it was. 
Yeah, I think when we originally were looking at it, we thought that that was going to explore some of that side of things, like what happened to some of these mutants that they did with multiple powers or different powers and how that worked out. At least that's what the art led it to believe, like led us yeah. to believe that's the way it looks. So who knows? And it, it's it's all up in the air, but I feel like I, I want to talk about the actual Crucible itself for a brief second, just so we okay. can ex- explain what that is. So as I said, that... Mutants that were depowered during the House of M events with Scarlet Witch, where she said no more mutants and she wiped out. She didn't kill them, but she depowered thousands and thousands of music mutants and took it down to just under 200 mutants with power. Well, those those people are still living, but they're living as humans, although that at their core, they're mutants. And one of them is Melody Guthrie. And she has to go through the crucible. Now, what the crucible is in mutant culture you basically have to have a champion versus champion one-on-one fight with Apocalypse. Yep. <laughs> it's a sword fight. No small task. No small task. Yeah, you have to have a one-on-one fight with Apocalypse where inevitably, yeah, you are going to die, but you can't just roll over. And it's essentially you have to prove yourself that you are worthy of being a mutant again. It was an intense moment because you see like this seemingly little girl, you know, and I use that word. I mean, she's probably like a college age yeah. woman. You know, looks like she could be a supermodel and she's going up against this, you know, 10,000 plus year old being who can pretty much wipe out anything if he really wants to. And he he puts her through the paces, you know, oh, yeah, beats her down, gives her a chance to quit multiple times, you know, to make sure that she'll keep getting up, keep taking more punishment. And the idea of the crucible truly is just to guarantee that these people want what they are going to be given because it's such a big gift and there's a lot of responsibility to getting your powers back yeah yeah absolutely but it it was brutal like her brother and her sister were there and watching i mean the entire Kirkoa nation was there watching this go down and seeing apocalypse like you said basically just beat a, a girl like a you know a teenage girl i'm not you know we don't know how ex- exactly how old she is but she's young and you know he's he's got this giant sword it looked like she was working with needle from game of thrones <laughs> and yeah he put her through her paces and it was it was powerful it, it was very powerful but on the back end when it was all said and done and inevitably apocalypse kills her and she's reborn everyone is very supportive and it's this moment where she actually it, it's she lifts herself up and with the light behind her and the art is just masterfully done showing her that she's proven worthy of this gift and moving forward should be a major player yeah i I was interested to see if we will get more crucible moments throughout the the continuation of the story arcs right like is it something maybe not as highlighted and specific as this issue was where they were introducing it to us but you know will we see certain mutants here and there or or whatever certain conflicts come out mentions of a crucible that happened the other day you know those types of things as we move along because it is going to be a very important part of their society and flip side too you know there are people that choose not to go through it right and choose to stay without their powers so i think there's a lot of questions there are interesting things that they could do with the stories just from that aspect now that they've introduced it and if they choose to not go through with it, do they get to stay on Krakoa? Yeah, exactly. Or are they de- or are they deemed human and kicked off? Exactly. It'll be some interesting stuff. 
Not much time was left for questioning, though, after the Crucible, uh, as the new mutants returned from an away mission through space with a brood king egg that Sunspot stole from the Shi'ar Empire. So this kicked off issues 8 and 9, and we believe it will directly tie in to the Marvel Universe larger story, the Empire event. Um, And this one was pretty wild. Like, he comes back, the new mutants come back with this brood egg, and they weren't 100% sure what it was, but then it also brought with it the full force of the brood, uh, which are like this alien society that seemed to spawn themselves and just consume yeah, they're a hive, like almost like crazy locusts. Yeah, alien locusts. The way they've got hive mentality, they communicate as one organism, and they number in the trillions. Yeah, it's wild, and we've seen a few of those throughout the Dawn of X series. Once again, dating back to House of X and Powers of Ten, we saw the Phalanx there towards the end, which was a hive mind society, and here we are seeing yet another one. But this one. Issue 8 introduced them, and then Issue 9 took it a step farther and showed you the history of it. Yeah. And the fact that the Shi'ar, or the Kree, excuse me, found the brood and what this society, like, is and how they consume and the hive mind mentality. And then they adapted a king egg, which allows one person to control the entire hive. Yeah, that was pretty cool. I will say, when I first got Issue 8 and read it, it felt super out of place yeah. compared to the other issues so far in X-Men. But some of that is because we aren't reading every one of the you know 15 titles that are out there for the Dawn of X. There was probably some events that happened in some of the others that helped tie it in here. But ultimately, it turned out to be a pretty cool issue as the brood comes into Krakoa. There was a really good battle scene there, right, as the X-Men and the mutants are figuring out, like, this egg that we brought back is not just a souvenir. Yeah. <laughs> it is, it's a threat in its own way. But I remember when I was first getting into it and I was kind of like, where did this come from? Oh, yeah, it's totally out of place because for, you know, five, six, seven, we're getting mutant based stories. And then boom, out of nowhere, it's this intergalactic uh, guardian and kid guardian show up. All these, you know, universal galactic characters are just here all of a sudden. And I mean, that happens with events when when you have title wide or publisher wide events, you know, that that's going to happen. All of a sudden, your books are just going to stop. But it did. Eight seemed super out of place. But then nine filled in the gaps and it was pretty cool. It did. Still, I enjoyed it, especially as a two part. It all made sense. And like you said, it sets up some bigger, wider reaching events than just what's been going on in Dawn of X. I thought it was really funny at the very end of nine when they're fighting over the the king egg and the x-men are taking it off planet you know trying to get the brood to follow them away from earth and in the middle of all the chaos everything kind of stops and they realize that the character brew had eaten the king egg essentially taking control of the entire horde and it kind of gave me a, a good oh shit moment like i was like what does this mean right and then it ended there essentially another cliffhanger yeah but it did seem like things went from very dire with you know trillions of these enemies attacking them to well hey now one of our own is like the leader so it it was making my head swirl of like how that was all going to fit together now that essentially one of them has control of what seemed to be like this huge big bad force that was going to be uh 
impactful here for a while. Well, and I know that in the very final pages of number nine, they kind of give us one of those info pages and they talk about how a king ed works and it's t- it's temporary. So we will see that. Oh, that's right. That, yeah, that's so right. Brew has eaten this egg and he will get temporary control over them. But it ultimately, like, when it wears off, they, they're going to come for him. Good point. So, you know, it's like that you take mental control over somebody that's powerful. When that mental control is gone, they're going to be pretty pissed and they're going to start, yeah. <laughs> they're going to start coming for you. But Brew as a character, uh, and it, it's just like you said, it's the downfall of not being able to read 15 different X-Men titles. He, he debuted in New Mutants. Okay. Uh, or at least first showed up there. So. Maybe that'll be a trade pickup for us later down the line. Uh, and Jonathan Hickman is also writing New Mutants on top of the X-Men flagship series. So I'm sure that's why everything is interwoven gotcha. on that side. That makes more sense, yeah. So while the comic community seems to be split on the overall direction of Jonathan Hickman's vision for the X-Men, we can't get enough of it. It feels like a fresh new take with quality seeds being planted for future portrayals and universe-wide consequences. We are excited to see where these roads lead us. With the recent success of the Final Fantasy VII Remake, we reached out to the Geek Ketchup community and asked what video games from the past would they most like to see completely remade. After receiving more than 120 comments across social media and a whopping 65 different games being called out, we tallied up all that received more than one mention and ranked them in the Kyle and I's top 10. 10. GoldenEye. Classic N64. Everybody loves it. Slaps all around. 9. NES from 1985. Paperboy. 8. The Punisher. PS2 version from 2004. Def Jam Vendetta. Not Fight for New York. The original Def Jam Vendetta. Six. Manic Mansion. NES, 1987. I was just a one-year-old pup. Five. Double Dragon. Oh, man, Double Dragon. Four. The Lost Game of the PS1 era. Legacy of Cain, Soul Reaver. Three. Contra. The original Contra, I won't fight you, but three is better. Two. Chris and I love this game. 1993, Zombies Ate My Neighbors. One. It could only be this one. Please, please, please remake it. The Legend of Dragoon. PlayStation 2000. It got lost in the mix of those Final Fantasy VII, Final Fantasy VIII years. Remake this game. Published by Image Comics, Die is the creation of writer Kieran Gillen and artist Stephanie Hans. This is a dark, gritty, and violent story that follows a seemingly normal party of friends as they are transported into the world of Die. Back in Chapter 8, Kyle and I talked a bit about Volume 1 of this story, and today we are discussing Volume 2, which is Issues 6 through 10. If you haven't heard our initial thoughts from that chapter, then we suggest you go and check it out. But for now, we're going to jump back in and break down one of our favorite current non-superhero titles. Yeah, definitely go check out Chapter 8 where we talk about this. I'm pretty sure I said it this exact same way, and I'm going to say it again. I fucking love this book. It's so good. Every part about it is just so good. The dialogue, the art, the ideas behind it, the world that they've created. It's just on point start to finish. I couldn't agree more. I was trying to think about if I really wanted to say this or not, but I think that at this moment in time, Die 
is my favorite comic that I'm reading. And, you know, I've been getting them in the volumes or the trades, so I'm getting it all at once. But across the board, character development, what we're seeing these characters go through, the world that has been built here, the influx or injection of a lot of the Dungeons and Dragons classic RPG elements into a story like this. It's just, it's hitting on all levels for me. I thought that volume two really, you know, kind of the way I described it was like it increased the difficulty. <laughs> if you think about that, yeah. right? you know, it upped the ante, it upped the stakes, it got harder for the characters, uh, all of that. It put them into much more conflict and danger than volume one. And they're still continuing to be confronted with the decisions that they made the very first time they came through the die world. And so, you know, it really hit on all cylinders and, and continued on pretty much where volume one left off. I thought that they went a little bit of a, a different route, you know, where like at first I remember feeling like some of the character development was, was lower or less emphasized right. when I first started reading volume two, but then that kind of picked up as we went along too. So I ended up being very happy overall. Yeah. Oh, volume two. You're right. Maybe in that first number six, they, they didn't quite go into the character, the deep dives in the characters that we saw in the first volume. But eventually that that did start to happen. And we saw, I love when they do the backstories and they show the parallels between what's happening in the die world and what these characters experience in the real world and the, the way it goes back and forth there. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. Number six picked up right at the end of number five with Glastown being destroyed. Uh, and I, I just love that the emotion that we see right out the gate with this book and especially the realness that's given to the character of Angela. Yeah. Uh, who's the Neo or the cyberpunk and things like that. Uh, and, and she's immediately put in this very difficult situation where the, the party has been split apart and it's her, Matt, the grief knight and Ash, and they need to escape this area but they need to do it with fair gold and she is immediately put in this situation where fair gold powers powers her and the various abilities that she has and she has to make this hard decision where like a big part of story one was case the dog that she that she had resurrected and continues to bring back and she wastes fair gold on case the dog and here they are in the situation well they need fair gold to get out and case is kind of just extra weight like they don't need case yeah, but she does. But she does. She emotionally needs Case to get through this world. Uh, and I just, I love it. Like, it, it just hits all the right notes for me. That's really the, the number one thing that I have here on Die in general is that it is so focused on the characters and the character development. That's why I was so worried at first when I first got into Volume 2 that Maybe they weren't going to go that deep and then they circle back and we get some really good highlights of each of the characters throughout the next few issues. But to me, that's the most interesting aspect of the entire book is because they've done so well at creating relatable characters, at creating characters with lots of depth. And they've got both the, the real world version of them, which most everybody kind of relates to from one way or another and then you have their avatar version essentially in the die world and you know some of those things are crossing over each other some of them are similar it's just to me that's been the most interesting part but 
even the world and how they bring it to life is done very well. You know, the art in the series is really clicked with me. It's very minimalist. Yeah. And almost like simplistic. It makes me think of like oil drawings or chalk drawings. Yeah. But it's still so powerful. You know, the details that Hans puts in when she does always seem to be perfect and like very important or, you know, like just the way it's done. It's not everything is perfectly detailed out. The backgrounds might be kind of vague or, you know, just a color like the green, the color of green to show that they're in a field or, you know, something simple like that. But then it allows you to really come in and focus on, oh, well, maybe the this piece of their suit or this weapon that they use or whatever it may be. Damn, look how, you know, intricate and and detailed that piece is. And I don't know. It's just different from what we see in a lot of the other mainstream comics. No, I'm with you. It allows for me, it allows the dialogue and the story to take center stage. Yeah. And that it, the art does exactly what it needs to do. It doesn't overpower anything else. It supports the story and, and the situation. And, and that's what I've taken out of it. Like, yeah, you're right. In the bigger panels, when in the high action scenes, she definitely gets the show off and it's incredible. But for the most part, the book is centered around the conversations. Exactly. Like you said, minimalist is a perfect, I hadn't thought of it that way, but it is, it's a perfect description of what is going on. That's not to say that it's not good because it is, it's absolutely incredible and stunning, but it perfectly matches the tone of the rest of the book. For sure. And we did see some of these things taken further. You know, we obviously got a good introduction into all the characters in volume one. But what I did like is ultimately they they took all of them to a level deeper mm-hmm. than what we saw. You know, you mentioned Angela's desperation and handling the fair gold and her dog. And who can't relate to having to choose whether or not, you know, you keep your, your best friend companion around, you know, your your little puppers. But we also saw things like Matt the Grief Knight. We got to see him go to this temple where there were other knights that were very similar to him. And what I thought was cool was we got to see that there was actually a choice he made yeah. in which weapon he wanted to use and essentially which emotion he wanted to use for his power. And, you know, we see one that's based on anger. We see one that's based on love. We see one, you know, they show these different glimpses of these weapons. But Matt chose the sword of grief, which allowed him to channel everything that had happened to him in the real world in a way that makes him almost more powerful than anybody else. Yeah, and and to speak to that scene, he confronts three knights of joy. And in that battle, he says, you know, you fight with joy but you're always fighting to hold on to it, which it makes you it, it makes you susceptible. Yep. And, you know, you're, you're always fighting on, you know, on the back heel versus I'm using grief, something I want to be rid of. Like, I don't want to feel depressed. And that constantly makes me more powerful because I don't want this in my life. So I'm fighting to get rid of it. Yeah, he channels it into like one giant blast. He devastates everything. And then he's like moving to the next situation. So... I thought some of those things were really cool. I I also liked learning that that Ash, the dictator, you know, one of the main characters who is a female in the die world, but a man in reality, when you find out that she actually had a child. Yeah. That really, I thought, took that character to another level. Because in, in volume one, they do address the conflicts of sexuality with Ash, you know, being a man in the real world, but a woman here, you know, or a woman here. 
he had a relationship with a man, but then to take it that step further and realize that he also birthed a child. A child, yeah. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, what is going on in this guy's head, whether he's in the real world or this world? Like, think about the internal conflicts that are going on with him. Yeah, and they, they touch on that a little bit because what something that happens to him in the real world is that he and his wife can't conceive. Yeah. Or or they said they waited to conceive and then they waited too long and then couldn't. Yeah. And so, and he can't tell his wife part of the limitations of going to die and then coming back is they weren't, they were bound to not be able to speak about it in the real world. So he couldn't even share that with his wife. It was just this in like this turmoil that he felt within himself that almost guilt that he had this child and die and wasn't able to have one in the real world that was true and i'm i'm really excited to see where they go in the third arc with augustus which is ash's daughter or ash's son excuse me and in the powers because they kind of hint that augustus is like part god Mm -hmm. and has a lot and is very threatening to the world of die but so people limit him and what he can do right i think he, he could end up being a major player um and and how they utilize him but I don't want to skip past it because it, it, it ties in with Ash and it ties in with what we saw with Angela as the Neo and Matt with the Grief Knight. One of the cool things that they also did was a little bit of backstory on the characters and the roles that they fill and the and the limitations of a Neo and of an Emotion Knight and of a Dictator because it is an RPG and you can't just be all powerful. Right. You, you, <laughs> you pick a class and your class has strengths, but your class also has major weaknesses so to get a little a deeper dive into that was super cool. I feel like we're still very much just in the prologue of this story. You know, like this is something that could run for a long while. And, you know, because of how deep everything is that they're setting up, you know, I, by the time I got to the end, I really just still felt like, OK, well, this was this was the prologue. Now we're at the starting point of what this story is really going to be. And it's all because of the I think just the fact that they've been so focused on those characters and just kind of establishing them, establishing their roles and abilities. And now it's like, okay, we can go and really see them using them and living them and and doing what they really need to do to move forward. Um, I don't know if you had any thoughts there. No, I, I'm with you, and I, I'm excited to see it as well because I think you're right. In these first two volumes, they've it's been world building and exposing these characters and who they are, both in the real world and in Die. Ha- and at this point, we know everyone's backstory as far as wh- where they were when they were teenagers, where they were as adults, what they were in Die, and what their powers hold. So, like, boom. The world is established. We know. exactly. Now we can get into the nitty gritty and like actually get lost in the world of Die. Maybe a better way that, to put it that comes to mind is like this was the, the tutorial. Yeah. <laughs> and now we're going to play the game. Yeah, sure. But I, I couldn't get enough of it. I, I read all of volume two pretty much cover to cover in I think two sittings. Like I in one day, though, like I just I started it and then I couldn't put it down because I just really enjoy it so much. It. It hits on all the notes. I mean, it is intense. There's a lot of conflict going on between the world, between the characters. So the tension is continuing to build. And you know that there's just bountiful action scenes coming our way. Yeah. With how much war and destruction and death is a part of this world. Yeah. And that's actually something I hope that we get more of in the future. Because so far, 
the focus has been on the dialogue and the story and, and building, and they've left out a lot of the high action scenes. So th- there's a moment where I believe it's in number seven where Chuck, the fool, Isabel, the godbinder, wants to basically punish him for being an idiot. And so she uses she uses one of the gods to punish Chuck. Mistress Woe. Mistress Woe, thank you, yeah. And she calls down a titan later. And Chuck just, he knows what he's got to do. He's got to take his sword and he's got to take down this giant titan, which basically looks like the Iron Giant. Yeah. Uh, like more or less, <laughs> more or less, it looks like the Iron Giant. And, but we don't get to see it. It's like the what the first panel is him walking into the fight. And then the next time we see him, he's basically standing on top of a conquered giant. And it's like, oh man, I, I'm so ready to see these battle sequences. Yeah. That's how they've handled most of them so far has been brief. It's just teasing us with what these people are able to do. Another moment that came to mind on those lines was Ash, the dictator, you know, and a dictator's power is that they can essentially compel people to do whatever they say right they can use their voice and their words to just instantly take control of somebody essentially or make them go do their bidding and so there's a moment where ash comes up against a few other probably less powerful dictators and it kind of blew my mind because all she had to do to end the conflict was she told one of them you know to quote love her without limits and the character, the you know, the enemy just burst into flames. Yeah. And and at first I was like, well, why the hell did she burst into flames? But then you start to think about it that way. Like, if you truly love somebody with no limits, you know, they talk about your heart's on fire. Right. And, you know, you feel like you're going to explode because you just want to be with them. And, all. and like, literally, this character exploded. <laughs> no, it's, it's, I, I didn't think of it that way. But no, that's true. Like I like when I saw that, it was like I guess my my brain didn't go that deep, but it, it's it's true. Like and the symbolism of it is just absolutely incredible. And once again, symbolism is a good word. It it speaks to what this book does, uh, like through in and throughout, like in, in taking these moments and this idea and expanding it out into something like visual like that. Yeah, it it's just yeah, it it's. It's next level stuff. I, I we can't say enough of just how good it has been. Well, and from the the other side of the coin, right? As the reader, I think what it, this does a good job at is that all of these little moments and these character uh, builds they really challenge the reader to kind of stop and think. Okay, well, if I was this person, how would I handle that, or what I would think about it? And if you think about a lot of the characters, you know, they're hitting on powerful things, addiction, religion, emotional instability, loyalty. With Ash, there's cross-gender curiosities. You know, a lot of those are things that a lot of people, everyday people, struggle with and have internal conflicts. And so I just thought that it really, if you look at it from that standpoint, it has a lot of a lot of stuff to say. Yeah. You know, even though it's a comic. Well, it's kudos to the medium. For being able to be more than just like we we said in the intro, it's one of our favorite non superhero comics because it, it proves that comic books aren't all Batman, Superman, like exactly tights and capes. Like there's real emotion and real stories to be told here, and you shouldn't be discrediting it just because it's paired with art. Yeah, exactly. So what did you think? Because I know another part of the this volume we saw was in issue nine. 
they finally gave us a little bit more about the history of Die with the introduction of the character Charlotte Bronte. So what were your thoughts on that issue? That issue blew my mind. And something you just touched on where like, you really got to stop and think. I actually, I read that issue, stopped, reread it. And then when, you know, when we knew that we were going to talk about it, I went and read it again to make sure. And it was just, there's so much going on in that. I didn't know if I necessarily took it as she built it, her and her family, because that was kind of the gist is that her and her family built this world, her and her brothers and sisters, but it was definitely the inspiration right. behind this world. Yeah, it left me with some questions. So in that issue, they introduce these toy soldiers that essentially these children from, say, the 1800s, if you think. Sure. Little house on the prairie, one house, you know, dad's gone for many months, comes back, has these very basic Russian toy soldier, nutcracker-looking things to give to the kids, and they start to create and build. So around who these characters are that they create for each of these soldiers. So the thing that came to mind, or the question I was left with, was are those toy soldiers the actual source of the die world, or is this all simply just showing the power of a child's imagination because you know they always talk about you know you think about growing up like anything you dream of you can make reality anything that you can imagine you can make happen and so just another one of those like little pieces of symbolism or whatever you want to call it it it, it kind of made me think like is the die world real or is it entirely fictional you know is it just imaginative or are there darker forces actually driving what is happening here and that's yeah that's a tough question loaded question to try to think (laughs) about like uh yeah like wow i'm kind of hit for a spin here like that that's that's tough like because it's something they haven't totally addressed they've been pretty vague about how die exists and they've questioned soul right the the six the sixth member in the party think they keep saying that he created the world of die but he hasn't fully admitted that yet. Exactly. And we got in the first volume, we saw the old man walking through the war zone and very casually. And he kind of hinted that he had started it. So that that is that is a loaded question of how this world came to be. Uh, and then we also get a lot of questions because of the fallen. And that's something that they question. Like when somebody dies here, they turn into these mindless beings known as the fallen. But they're like, how could there possibly be this many fallen if we're the first people to be here? And they start to realize that there's clearly a history well beyond them. Yeah, which plays into like it does. That's where like the Jumanji feel comes like, mm-hmm. OK, what is this game that we've lost ourselves into? Which is honestly that getting lost in it is a huge takeaway. I took from issue nine where Charlotte and her siblings They come up with these stories and develop this world. And then when they grow up, they say, we have to leave it. We have to leave it alone. We have to we have to move on with our lives. We can't obsess over this world that we've created. And so they all go their own ways. But upon their deaths, you find out that they never could let it go. Yeah, it stuck with them forever. And uh, yeah, it, it definitely all adds up to way more questions than we have answers at this point. But I think that that is also just so key for why it's so good. Yeah. You know, is it's got the mystery, it's got the action, it's got the characters, and it's got the art and just it all packaged up. I would be so sad 
if for some reason we didn't get, you know, just a couple years worth of this story. And I haven't seen how long they plan on producing it. And of course, you know, as we said with some of the other items, you know, who knows with all that's going on with COVID-19 and the state of the comic industry. But I think out of everything I'm reading right now, I want more of this and I want to make sure that it continues. Yeah, we've said it before. There are certain books that you you get on Wednesday. You buy it on Wednesday and you bring it home and it's you instantly read it and you, you don't do anything else with like you don't do anything else until you read this book. And Die has absolutely been one of those. And the rereadability of it has been key because every time I've reread one of these issues, I've picked up on something I didn't get the first time. And it's just made the world that much deeper, that much better, that much stronger um, with the comparisons and the symbolism and everything that's going on. I, I know I'm not as much of a tabletop game guy, but at the same time, I'm really interested to see if they get... Because the creator is working on a a board game version, essentially, of this to bring out. And I'm, like, all in, even though that's not my jam, yeah. usually. <laughs> you know? But I'm like, man, like, if I get... If, if the books stay this good and we get so invested in the characters, like, playing a game where it actually brings you into the world would be next level, at least for us, as, as somebody that's been following along with it right now. Oh, yeah. I kind of thought that as good as the volume was that once we got to the end it still was able to make my mind explode a little bit because you see the characters moving through some kind of confusion what are we going to do how do we get everybody back together how do we get out of here and they realize they're going to have to start taking some more drastic steps to achieve those goals and so we see ash start to be the manipulator and you know start to move in with a little bit of like a master plan, it seems, with him. And we get some backstory on how all dictators work. And then at the end, we see him essentially ascend to the throne of Angria and become a queen. And I did not expect that to happen at all. No, well, it takes that twist. So she binds uh, Zamorna, who is the father of her child. Uh, he's, He's a vampire built to be a lustful 17-year-old in the world of Dai, and uh, at one point was the king ruler of Angria, uh, which is where they are, and she kind of, Ash takes on the role of, if we are to truly get out of here, we need to defeat the game, and to defeat the game, I need to take over. Yeah, and so it left me wondering, is our seemingly innocent character here gonna end up being corrupted you know is he gonna end up falling into die i don't know it just it left with a lot more questions because he also seems to be wondering whether or not he enjoys being a man or a woman more yeah is he really more of ash the dictator the beautiful female or is he ash the everyday normal guy back in the real world with his nine to five job right which version of himself is more dominant so seeing him go to the throne and when they end it there at the end of issue 10 with him in charge of everybody and using his powers in ways that maybe have never been done before. It really upped the stakes somehow. Yeah. Right. Like how does it continue to up the ante, but it just upped the stakes even more. And really just, I was impressed. I could see it going down the path of, like you said, like which version, which version of himself is he going to be? And the power hungry Ash, the dictator, could I very easily get lost in that world. And, and once she, you know, once Ash has ascended to the throne, 
and is ruling this massive kingdom, which they've stated covers three whole chunks of the die world. So if you think of the world in itself as a giant like D&D cube, like a 20-sided die, and they, they hold three of them, which is more than any other kingdom in all of die, like... If you put yourself in that position, why would you ever want to leave? Right. So I I could see that going down the path of being like the party. This volume was literally called Split the Party. But it could definitely happen where some of them may not ever want to leave. They may just settle in and say, yeah, we got trapped here as teenagers, which I'm sure was an issue when they were teenagers. Some wanted to stay. Some wanted to go. That could happen again. But they can't unless they all agree to leave. And I think that that's going to be where some more of that character development comes in. Because in the very beginning of Volume 1, you see certain people take very, you know, once they're back, Chuck is like, yes, sweet, finally, I'm back. I'm way more important here. Yeah. And then others are just like, no, we can't be here. This isn't reality. But I have a sneaking suspicion that over time, we're going to see some of those beliefs switch and certain characters that did not want to be here originally are not going to want to leave and vice versa. Yeah. That they've been there so long that their regular lives have given up on them. Exactly. Or they've given up on the regular lives or they've given up on the, yeah. Why would you want to go back to, you know, just being like a grocery bagger or whatever, you know, I don't, I forget what Ash's career is, but you know, just think about the most like mundane, normal life. You know, why would you want to go back to that when you could be essentially like Cersei on top of Westeros? Yeah. It's true. Yeah, and like, why would you want to give up that power? Unless, I mean, but it is a threatening place. It is. It is. It's very dangerous. I don't know. What all, What other thoughts did you have here on Volume 2? I was really, you know, I was really intrigued with the introduction of more of what they call the NPCs. And Chuck actually makes a little comment when he's chatting up two little dwarves who have a bit more backstory than he anticipated. And he actually turns, he goes, I didn't realize you guys had a full-blown backstory. I thought <laughs> I thought you were just one-note characters. And they, and it's funny because they just continue to speak to him as an NPC would. Right. You know, in a video game, they just keep repeating the same lines. But that's the stuff that, like, is really interesting to me. And we, we saw it with Charlotte Bronte, like, okay, she was a jailer here in this situation. But there's clearly more depth to that character. And I would like to see that more with the other NPCs, get to know what has Augustus been up to in Ash's time away? What has Zamorna been up to in the time away? Like, get full-blown backstories on each of these NPCs as as they were. Just to help make your point is that we also don't know a whole lot about what is causing the different conflicts between the different parts of Dai. So we know that there's Eternal Prussia that has, like, all these robots and, like, mechanical dragons and things like that and they're seemingly trying to attack everybody and and act you know like the warring party you know coming after everybody but we don't really know what the driving factor is behind that we don't know what a lot of the motivations are in some of these different groups and different lands so i think that that's probably going to be the next step along those lines is we've got to start seeing more about these npc characters the lands the motivations and maybe that's where the next volume will focus in on. Yeah, I would love to see it as, you know, as cool as the core six have been and their backstories and powers and what they're all about. Learning more about the world of die is where it's at for me. 
Yeah, definitely a ton to come. I, I Going back to those battles, too, being that we've seen those little tastes of Eternal Prussia, I, I am really, really hoping that we get some seriously epic battles between a lot more of those you know, mechanical dragons and Matt the Grief Knight or Chuck or whoever it may be, because I think we could get some really cool art. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it was cool enough to see Angela, the Neo, take over the mechanical dragon by using her abilities as a Neo. Uh, so to see full-fledged battles, maybe a Titan with a dragon and one group going against another one. We, we've got Zamorna is a, is a vampire, and that you know they, they've shown that, and he definitely has abilities. So I'd like to see everyone kind of go full-blown. We talked about it in the X-Men. It was really cool to see Iceman go full Omega Mutant, and I'm, I'm trying to see matt really unleash because at one point he did say if i were to get sad enough and unleash my full might i could level this city yeah and i'm like yeah yes please <laughs> yeah they're all holding back a little bit and so it's you know we really need to see exactly how far this can go and if they're really only bound by their imagination yeah for sure die has been an incredible series that we would recommend to anyone that's looking for a break from the high action batmans and avengers styled superhero comics of the world the dialogue and intrigue is just top notch stephanie hans's art is on point check it out thank you for listening to geek ketchup if you enjoyed today's chapter please remember to subscribe to geek ketchup on apple Podcasts, stitcher spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast Check out Geek Ketchup on Facebook and YouTube, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Geek Ketchup Pod for updates on new episodes every two weeks. You can find links to all these accounts in the show notes below or at our website, www.geekketchuppodcast.com. Stay saucy, you nerds.